Welcome once again to Mind Rolling. I'm David Silver in New York, and... I'm Raghu Marcus in North Carolina, which uh, Dave just deprecated even further. What, what, what was this thing? Well, it was the morning... This is the morning of the... Um, the Republicans voting for the forty-second time to, you know, to get rid of Obamacare uh, by threatening to shut down the government. Great move, of course, by them. And uh, it was all Republicans and no Democrats. But there were two Democrats. One was a Mormon gentleman from Utah, and the other one was from North Carolina. A Democrat voting to actually get rid of Obamacare and shut down the government. Apart from that. Great state. Apart from that, Dave suggested that I move uh, fairly immediately and get out of here. It is absolutely gorgeous here, but uh, yes, I, I understand, because the, the Republican uh, governor here in North Carolina is rolling back everything she can possibly roll back by state law. And, you know, so people are uh, really up in arms, especially in Asheville, where, where I am, which is obviously a an oasis of liberalism in the midst of the jaws of the uh, fundamentalists, etc. Kind of like being in Austin, Texas, really. It's full yeah, of yeah, very much like Austin, Texas. Great yeah. place. Great yeah. place. Anyhow, we don't want to elaborate right. on that. It's just... No, I, you know, we, we do it, want to say how... It is suffering, though. Uh, people are going to be suffering if, if they get their hand on this. Yeah. And, and that is, uh, you know, some of what we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But before that, I want to remind you, Dave, uh, that uh, we have so many things. I'm not reminding you, but I, I am bringing it up that you've been putting up great things on the website, mindrollingpodcast.com, and extras and so on, and good things for people to look into and, and purchase from books to DVDs and so on and so forth. And uh, what place more better than Amazon, where you can get all of this stuff in one fell swoop by going to mindrollingpodcast.com and finding our banner there for Amazon, because whatever you buy, you know, really helps us out. Now, people, you have been helping us, and uh, we are, are, are appreciating this. I think that this, Dave, I didn't even discuss this with you, but I think we are coming on to our, uh, we are next month, one year anniversary of mind rolling. Yeah, that's remarkable in itself, um, actually. But it, I, we do thank everybody who's contributed so far in, in various ways that you have, either donation or through uh, Amazon or audible.com, which is another banner on the website. Go to the website, though, because I, I, I suspect some of you don't have time to be getting to every nook and cranny of our thing. But it, I, we think it's worth it. We're putting up all kinds of new stuff now and extras and blogs and excerpts from the, the, the podcast so you can get a little taste. And, uh, you know, uh, we like our website. And um, the guy who designed it did a great job, Stig. And uh, we want, we'd love you to go to it. So go there. And please don't forget to use our Amazon portal because it, it, it doesn't do anything to the way you transact with Amazon. But it does give us a small percentage of what you buy. So... That's it. We're not going to. We we know from our dear friend Duncan Trussell that uh, we, we have to promote at the beginning, because if we don't promote at the beginning, it's over. It's like when you call AT and T, and the voice comes on and says, "Do you mind after your transaction with the agent, filling doing a small survey?" Yeah. And, and you know the percentage you do the survey is between one and one point one percent. I made that no, up. No, it's uh, got to be even less than that. Yeah, you know, because who does it? So we're not, we've learned from this, this, and, and so, you know, try and help us out by doing that. And tell your friends um, and, and like us on Facebook, which helps too. Uh, just like the page on, on Facebook mm. and follow the Twitter. I did seven Twitters, seven tweets this morning. And I would love it if you guys could sort of check them out because they're slightly different from the podcast. And Dave is very creative around really? all of these things. Well, I love your I love your blogs that you've been putting up a lot and I you know, this is a real offering and uh so and and please uh you know, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We love the mail. Yeah, we get great mail. I mean, really in I'm going to read a, a couple of them with mm. permission eventually when I get the permission of the writers because they come up uh some of of, of our friends have come up with really great um dilemmas, for instance. And a lot of questions about how dilemma? to... Dilemma? Dilemma. Dilemma. 
Dilemma. Okay. Dilemma. Well, you know. Um, die, die, yenu. Remember where I came from. Um, <laughs> right. You know, a non-English-speaking country called Britain. Um, no, but some of the letters are great because with these dilemmas uh, about money and how to make a living and still, you know, be on some kind of spiritual path that's, that's regular. Really good questions, some of which we try and answer, some of which we can't answer. Uh, but they're they're great. So we love you guys. We do. And we, I know that's the kind of thing that rock and roll, you know, hello, New York, we love you. And they don't even know where they are most of the time. Yeah. So it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're not doing that. So let's get to... Uh, but, but you know what? I want to say that maybe we could, because I've seen a few different uh, topics that people are bringing up that they would want us to, you know, get into. Why don't we do a show? We should do a show where we gather all the different kind of topics that people have suggested and just uh, run our mouths off about them all, yeah. as if we know something. Well, Alicia Aguilera, who who just sent us a, a letter and a donation, um, came up with some great topics, and we will address them, Alicia, if you're listening, if you're still listening. Let's get to what we're doing. Um, Raghu has been coming up with all kinds of articles, mainly from the New York Times, and came up with another one. Uh, which we're going to go through with you. It's it's called The Value of Suffering. And it's by a, a gentleman called Pico Iyer. Yeah. Uh, Iyer? Pico Iyer, I think is it. Pico um, Iyer, and yeah. who who's an author and uh, uh, a close friend, if you can call it that. But he certainly has um, been with the Dalai Lama in ways that most people you know don't get a chance to. And he wrote, actually, the most recent thing I read of his was this whole article he wrote, or it might have been part of a book or a small book, I can't remember, but it was about being with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and just witnessing his his day, actually, his days from morning. You know, it was an article, and witnessing his, his days from morning till, till evening. It was a fascinating uh, thing. He's a great writer. He... He's done a lot of travel writing as well. So another, uh, you certainly. He's done so much stuff. I mean, his parents were both really respected academics in the spiritual realm, actually. Um, and part of his name is Siddhartha, by the way. Mm. That's it's Pico Siddhartha Iyer, and he himself has has been involved in all kinds of analyses, but not too over, not too mind, not too much mind in there. Although he's very clever, uh, a lot of heart and a lot of of empathy in the way he writes about people. Um, he, he officially lives in San Diego, but he doesn't live there anymore. He lives in Japan with his Japanese wife. And in this article, which we're going to suggest to you, and I'll put it on the website uh, and on Facebook as to where you can get this article, so you can read it for yourself. In this article, he talks about, uh, he lives in a place called Nara in Japan. talks a lot about Japan in here in terms of the question of dealing with suffering. Uh, we Dave, yes. Can yeah, I bring something up just to set the tone? Because, not set the tone, but it's something in my own experience. Uh, when I was in India, way, way, way back when, with Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji, um, this quote from him may have not been said in my presence, but it, but it was certainly told to me at the very least uh, by very close people who I, you know, who would not even. Uh, a lot of people take quotes from from living masters and, you know, they might just add a couple of words, they might twist it slightly. In Maharaji's case, he, his, his phrasing and everything, a lot of the time he said things as questions. In, in a, it was a very funny way you'd have a dialogue. And then other times it was very, very simply said and plain spoken and, and things were added to. But in this case, he said, I love suffering. It brings me closer to God. Now, uh, I have a hard time imagining that he actually self-referenced himself with this quote. But I do know that uh, he would talk about suffering. Um, uh, the, probably the quote that was given to me directly. So This is all coming to mind just now, David, so sorry I'm, I'm meandering and everybody else. Um, but it is coming to mind that he did say to us directly, when you are in, when you are sick, when you are in the hospital, when you're in the cremation grounds or, or cemeteries, in other words, when someone dies, 
you are closest to God at any of those points. So obviously this reference to suffering brings me closer to God is absolutely correct from from him, from Maharaji. So uh, subsequent to that is Ramdas, of course, who translated a lot of what he got over in India, what we got over in India through books, lectures, and so on, and has talked a lot about uh, the value of suffering and uh, how it absolutely uh, brings you in into uh, a certain presence which allows you to to expand consciousness. Let's at its most simple and basic level. In other words, it it also allows transformation. And 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 I you know I mean don't you know Dave? Before we even get into this, people who who don't really change much until something. Um, unfortunate, you know, dramatic happens. I mean, have you met people like this? Yeah, myself. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know that um, uh, on, on a few occasions, it's just like a wake-up call, and that's a euphemism. You know, it's just a really, when something happens, a, a great loss, a death, or a great injury, um, it, it, it quiets you down really quickly, and then it wakes you up. It does both things. It quiets down all the moaning and whining and bratty things that are going on in your head about trivia. But it also, as you say, Raghu, it, it is that edge of awakening again that we're talking about a lot. And what Mr. Iyer in the, in the article is really talking about is how, what does it really mean when people say things like uh, suffering brings you closer to God or uh, suffering is the substratum of all living and we have to deal with it uh, and what he does in this article which is so brilliant is that he justifies you know that justifies that 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 sentiment uh the suffering brings you clarity and is also a, a gift of a kind which seems so paradoxical and, and counterintuitive to almost everyone and, and understandably so he justifies that but at the same time he creates this nuance, which is so brilliant. And I would want to read, Raghav, if it's okay, what he says about this experience with His Holiness, um, which I think is what the article's about um, in terms of how to deal with this. Let me just read this. He says, um, it's a little long, but I'll, I'll try and get through it quickly. Almost eight months after the Japanese tsunami, I accompanied the Dalai Lama to a fishing village, Ishinomaki, that had been laid waste by the natural disaster. Gravestones lay tilted at crazy angles when they'd not collapsed altogether. What was once a year before been a, a thriving network of schools and homes was now just rubble. Three orphans barely out of kindergarten stood in their blue school uniforms to greet him outside of a temple that had miraculously survived the catastrophe. Inside the wooden building by its altar were dozens of colored boxes containing the remains of those who had no surviving relatives to claim them, all lined up perfectly in a row behind framed photographs of young and old. As the Dalai Lama got out of his car, he saw hundreds of citizens who gathered on the street behind ropes to greet him. He went over and asked them how they were doing. Many collapsed into sobs. Please change your hearts. Be brave, he said, while holding some and blessing others. Please help everyone else and work hard. That is the best offering you can make to the dead. Here's the key. When he turned round, however, I saw him brush away a tear himself. I think this is really incredibly subtle stuff. Because obviously, as a Buddhist monk, uh, His Holiness understands the uh, function of suffering. But he's a human being incarnation. And so he cried. And I think that lets us off the hook a little bit, if you know what I mean, uh, in the sense that both things simultaneously are valid. You don't have to pretend that you're loving it, but you can sort of ascertain that you're gaining from it yourself. But if, if His Holiness himself could not hold back a tear, I think that suggests, to me at any rate, that um, uh, you can't suppress the emotion, uh, the painful emotion, totally, and go, whoop-de-doo, I'm on the edge of awakening again. It's great. My best friend just got run over. 
You know, I, I, I don't think that works. And that's what it, I think one of the things he's talking about. What do you think? I, I, I think you're absolutely right that this is, this brings in a very, very clear and focused way how, uh, how we can uh, use suffering without using it as an up level. You know, without this crazy mind shift that we all get into, oh, you know, this is only going to be for the good or, or whatever stuff that we tell ourselves. I think we should, I'd like to like, you You got to the point of what the balance is regarding suffering and experiencing pain and expressing, you know, human emotion around it and not jumping into some other astral zone or or as I said, big up level. But I think, so I, I would like to go back and then just talk about what it is that he's really talking about. So uh, what, you know, what the anomalies are here, um, because it's easy to talk this shit, is kind of what he's saying. Um, you know, for the Buddha, suffering is, is the first rule of life. And insofar as some of it arises from our own wrongheadedness or our cherishing of self, we have the cure for it within. So that, there's a basic concept and a spiritual uh, practice 101, especially in Buddhism, but anywhere, where, you know, this is something that we have to deal with day to day. Every day, suffering arises. It could be a minor depression. It doesn't have to be someone you know, getting very sick or, 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 or you know, having a, an accident or anything like that. Because every day we are facing that, if you are aware and conscious at all, just this stuff of seeing yourself cherishing everything and coming from the I, me, mine all the time, that's suffering. That is, you know, once you realize this, then, you know, that's suffering. Um, and then you can take that suffering and, uh, you know, following the Buddha's Four, four Noble Truths, you can do something about it, as, as he is saying here. We have the cure for it within. Um, then, uh, so in certain cases, suffering is an effect as well as a cause uh, of taking ourselves too seriously. Now, I love that. I mean, and here we are talking about our natural propensity for self-cherishing, which leads to suffering. Because, uh, you know, everything we do has a, an attachment to it. And as long as we're caught in expecting the results and, and uh, you know, all of that, uh, then, then we are absolutely taking ourselves too seriously. So that this is an important start where, where you just start with the little things and then realize, what are you doing here? And you can laugh about it because it's ridiculous. Then... Um, uh, the, the moving forward is is the idea of uh, that they have in the East that they really understand that suffering is something that takes you to a possible place of transformation. You know, depending on your vantage point and you know how deeply you are ensconced in awareness and the witness and so on and so forth. So uh, he even talks about it here as a privilege. Isn't that a, an interesting word? I mean, that's very Japanese, right? Um, you know, it's a privilege. It moves us towards thinking about essential things and shakes us out of short-sighted complacency. So uh, this this is a cultural thing, which would seem to be highly advantageous if you were born Japanese instead of American, where anything that that is slightly in opposition to our daily wants and needs is, you know, is a freak out immediately and certainly not a privilege, you know. So I, I, I love that as, as well. But then he gets into, um, he says, none of that begins to apply to a child gassed to death, and he's referring to, to what's going on in Syria, obviously, or born with AIDS or hit by a limited strike. Uh, philosophy cannot cure a toothache, and the person who starts going on about its long-term benefits may induce a headache, too. <laughs> so so this is back to where we're talking about, you know, just up-leveling yourself. The, oh, this is, this is going to be good. It's going to allow for transformation. This is all bullshit. Um, so, um, well, I, I think one has to differentiate between the suffering that comes from the attachment thing to the suffering that comes from loss. 
I'm, I'm not talking about the loss of a house in a hurricane. I'm talking about the loss of a parent or a child, even more so, of course. And there's a difference in degree and quality, too. In other words, um, you know, uh, we've all experienced these stupid things. Of, for me, it's, it's, it's waiting for a train at the local commuter station. And I was a little late, and I get there, and I find that the train came one minute early and left. So I didn't time it right. And I'm standing on the platform alone where before there were 30 people and now they're all on the train and I'm on the platform. And I'm thinking to myself, fuck, that's the fuck. I mean, that's what's going on. And, you know, I think what happens is that as you get older, I hate to put it like that, you do learn to temper that down because, you know, there are much thing, worse things that have even happened to you. And so the suffering of that nature, which is trivial, can be, I think, eradicated. I've done a good job, and I'm pretty impatient and whatever. I, I feel better about all those things than I did 30 years ago because I kept on the ball of saying, this is not really suffering to begin with. It's ego. Now, when it comes to the real suffering, that's a whole different story. So, uh, Well, I take umbrage you know, with real suffering because although you know, getting, you know, losing track of time and getting screwed on the train platform there it's not is... In the moment when you go through that anger, it's suffering, and and so on, it is suffering. Absolutely, no, you know, uh, it, it obviously, quantitatively, and qualitatively, far less than a tragic accident or a tra or sickness or uh, so on and so forth, or loss. Yes, that's true. But so what he seems to be where he's going with this is is, um, I, I mean, for instance, he talks about you know meeting. Uh, people in the East who are way out on the streets and have all sorts of things wrong with them. Um, I mean, it just happened to me in India, okay? This is, yeah. <laughs> I walked out of a Hanuman temple in Delhi, and I was introducing it to a couple of friends, and we walked out, and there was uh, an older lady who had been in the temple and just fallen down, was very sick. I mean, she was... I mean, you know, not to get gross, but, you know, there was diarrhea all over the place. I mean, people were just standing around her and so on and so forth. I mean, it was really intense suffering because you don't, I mean, you, you know, people, you know, you have no way of understanding what's going to happen here. And he talks about this sort of thing where, you know, I went through my, you know, hiccup reaction of, Oh God! Oh, well, I can't. What can you do? Uh, 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 you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and many's the time I've been. You know, for me, the example is India because I've been there a lot. And and many a time I have met people that they are in some condition like this, but you can tell they are not caught the way I am caught. And that's a huge difference. And again, that goes back to this whole thing in the East of suffering being a privilege because you are so ensconced in, in the concept of reincarnation. I mean, culturally, culturally living it, not something from the West where we have some, you know, uh, misguided ideas about it. Um, so I think that uh, that uh, he then takes that and he talks about how you know, what you're talking about, more minor suffering, which is, uh, you know, something you can especially deal with if you have any kind of awareness and, and witness going on. But does that change all the many times when suffering leaves us with no seeming benefit at all and only a resentment of those who tell us to look on the bright side and count our blessings, and recall that time heals all wounds when we know it doesn't. That starts to be something completely different. That, you you know, you cannot go around to people who have that kind of loss saying, you know, oh, you know, this suffering is going to help you transform. That. I mean, that is the no, kind should, of bullshit that... that it's, like, <laughs> it's like going to the house and singing that Monty Python song. What? Know? Always look on the bright side of life. Do, do, do. Always look. And every time I heard it, it made me laugh even more because I know how intelligent, I know how intelligent Eric Idle is. Yeah, right. And he's both saying, yeah, you should look on the bright side of life, but sometimes it's the most 
atrocious thing you can say to anybody at that moment in time. I mean, I had a conversation with someone a couple of days ago who's just gone through a breakup and all kinds of weirdness and, and you know, with a relationship. And he's suffering. And we've all been through that. I've been through it quite a few times. And, and it, is, it seems like intractable. Like, you know, it immobilizes you. Even if you're smart, conscious, meditator, yogi, whatever, it can really hurt. And on, in the phone conversation, which lasted an hour, uh, you know, all kinds of cliches were sort of bubbling up in my mouth, but I kept them back. Like, oh, come on, it'll pass. I mean, she, <laughs> you know, and, and all stuff like that, which when people said it to me, I would just think, I'm getting off the phone. You're not listening. You're not listening to me. I'm in, I'm in dire straits, and you're saying to me, all things must pass. Well, thanks, George Harrison. But the truth of the matter is, um, what I did do in my conversation was, um, the only thing I could say to him was, be kind to yourself and be gentle to yourself first now, because you're not in that relationship, so try and be nice to yourself. You know, And that was a cliche, and it was designed to somehow make him remember that, and then the, after he gets off the phone, you know, I don't know, make himself a really good meal or go out for a nice walk, something like that, something banal. Um, you can do that. But the truth of the matter is that when someone has a great trauma, um, you know, uh, the response to it is, is important if you're going to interact. And the response has to be real, right? That's all, to be honest. And, I, and we have a, a great example of this, actually. Of, uh, David and I have a very, very close friend whose daughter died tragically in a uh, bicycle accident um, earlier this uh, this past summer, in the middle of the summer. Seems like it just happened. And uh, he has tremendous, you know, he's he was with me in India with Maharaji, with Neem Karoli Baba. And, and, you know, he has tremendous what would I call them, assets in terms of, you know, he's really uh, been a transformed individual um, over these many years. So he, uh, he, he did, of course, uh, I, I would say, actually, David, you would better, because you were at the, at the memorial, but, but what yeah. I'm trying to say yeah. is the the way in which he had a balance between the grief and the awareness that this young uh, daughter of his uh, did not need more than those years, 14 years, uh, that she uh, had on this uh, as, a, as an incarnated soul. And she only needed that amount of time to finish whatever work, which is highly intellectual and nothing, uh, no one ever said anything like this. No, no idiot, whatever. But, but you yourself, David, being there, you just, you felt oh, how he had a... No question ahead. about it. Both him and, 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 and the mother, we'll not, we'll not, you know, talk too much about them. But I mean, the fact of the matter is they were both extremely centered and real at the memorial and, and clearly an awful grief. But um, I'll tell you, uh, let me tell you one example, because it's the only thing I can know of directly. Um, I know that he told me that just in sitting meditation, he could really connect with with her essence and felt that she was fine. And in those moments, wow. uh, he he was he was fine. Those moments didn't last very long. And yeah. and certainly there's a, you know, the the ratio of of of. Uh, absolute grief to a balance uh, of any sort was you know it'll take a it'll take years for that to come into any you know into way more uh, equality shall we say but i have to say that he said that and of course i i trust him uh, you know uh, more than anybody i mean he's just been so close to me uh, all these years and i went uh, i went to the house and I I sat in his daughter's room with his wife actually, and I experienced exactly what he had told me uh, that he had experienced, and I knew that that was the case. And and if, it's not my daughter, but it was like my daughter. I got to tell you, and uh, and I I know that that I walked out of that room, and then suddenly I was hit by this wall of grief. So. There is the, the, the awareness in this sense is nobody telling you anything, but the awareness is there that you, there is nothing but to bear this. And in this article, just to move back over to this article, um, 
th- he quotes this uh, this haiku master from the 18th century, Kobayashi Isa, and this particular haiku, uh, David, to me, this is, of course, His Holiness in that teardrop uh, is is what we just talked about. How do you keep that balance between humanity? and the grief that you'd experience and awareness. But uh, this world of dew is a world of dew, he wrote in a short poem. And yet, and yet, that's the poem, right? And this guy, this Isha, uh, he'd seen his mother die when he was two, his first son die, his father contracts typhoid fever, his next son and a beloved daughter die. He knew that suffering was a fact of life. He might have been saying it, he might have been saying in a short verse, he knew that impermanence is our home and loss, the law of the world. I mean, that's heavy stuff, right? How could he not wish when his daughter expired that it'd be otherwise? And after this poem was written, more and more, his own, his other son died. His body became paralyzed. His wife died, giving birth to another child. He married again, and 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 was separate. I mean, this guy had more loss in one lifetime than you could possibly imagine. And he married a third time, and his house was destroyed by fire. Yeah, and his Jesus. third wife bore him a healthy daughter, but he died before the- before he saw it. Was Her. Born. Yeah. And so yeah. his poem, This World of Dew is a World of Dew. And yet, and yet, I mean, th- this, th- so I, I keep, so what keeps coming back to me in all of these things, you know, uh, around uh, what uh, Pico is writing about, is how do you come to a sense of balance? between the experiences of, of a human in, in this incarnation when, um, you know, the, the reality is impermanence. Impermanence is our home, I think that's, and the loss, and loss, the law of the world. So how do you, bec- how do you get into balance? You know, well, first of all, you got to, I mean, I, I had to at any rate. I'm not going to take got it to anybody but i had to extricate myself from the paradigms that social social conditioning does on you in 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 western europe and the united states and so forth which is in denial of all impermanence (laughs) you know don't talk about death and everything will last forever and you know it's okay and and don't get uptight and have fun which is okay but the truth of the matter is that it, it doesn't take long in one's life to realize that it's all changing all the time by you know, microseconds, nanoseconds, and that um, by just pure observation, you see over your life the loss of great loved ones and uh, all kinds of changes going on all the time. And I must say, for me, for me, the psychedelic experience and then, of course, whatever forms of meditational experience I've had have contributed to my able to look this somewhat in the face. And to see that if it happens to everybody all the time and everything, even galaxies, live and die and transmute, then it can't be bad. It's sort of like that's the way I look at it. And after a while, you just mellow out. I mellowed out about, you know, well, it's all changing, you know. Um, My beard is white. It's not brown anymore. And soon there'll be no beard and no face to put the beard on. I know that perfectly well by now. And I'm not obviously that comfortable with it but it is what he's saying our only real home is impermanence you know uh, I, i've told this story before but i'm going to tell it again because it makes sense i was very close with alan ginsburg the poet and teacher and um we traveled together a little while and we were in the midwest one time and uh having lunch at an airport and and he asked me if i was afraid of death and i said yes i was kind of and he said yes i am too and look at us both pretending to be buddhists and everything and this was, this was, you know, when he was in his 70s. And then we laughed and we went our different ways, actually. Uh, 24 hours before Alan died, he called a whole lot of people. Didn't just call me. Mm. But uh, I read a piece about it recently in Tricycle Magazine. They did a piece about this. And it was very interesting because the piece was about exactly what I experienced. He called his close friends. And he called me and he, he said, I- I'm going to die tomorrow, which was something. 
And then he said, don't freak out. I know I am, and everybody does. And I've got great people here, uh, some monks. I'm listening to some blues music, and Patti Smith is on her way. Uh, so it's not all bad. But I, I, remember our conversation at the airport, David? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, I can finally tell you I'm not afraid of death anymore. I'm about to die. I said, oh, Alan, that's so amazing. Meanwhile, I'm freaking out because I really got close to him, and he was a wonderful human, amazingly gentle human being. And, you know, he said, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's tranquil. And that's a real beautiful gift that he gave me. He just said, it's tranquil. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And he said, I can't. I have to go now. I have some other people to call. And he got off the phone. It really affected me because it made me understand that impermanence wasn't necessarily um, – negative and awful and, and deadly, but was beautiful. Because he was saying, after this life of tri tri tribulation and change and effort and anxiety and ego, I'm finally, I'm gone. That's gone, and next, which is what he was saying. So he helped me, and I hope that just telling that story to people who are listening to this would help them, because it really did affect me. It affected mm -hmm. me, because he was no bullshitter either. It's like Ramesh would ask. Nothing came out of Alan's mouth that wasn't, really really what he was what he was really feeling um you had some similar i i think experience uh, in the making of that movie you worked on with tim leary no yeah tim leary um was um his whole point for the six months before he passed was to he said that drugs were the taboo of the 60s sex was the taboo of the 80s and death is a taboo of the 90s. And he wanted to talk about death all the time and get people around him and film him doing the whole thing. And um, his attitude was more, I thought, a little more cavalier rather than steeped in wisdom. In other words, he was about, I'm going to live until I die, you know, uh, but I don't know what's going to happen then, but I do want people to understand that it's a beautiful thing and that we should share our dying with those that we love. And they should enthusiastically, if they like, uh, share it with us and just be with us. And as he, typically Tim Leary said, you know, let's party together. You know, it, let's do it to the end. Uh, very different from what um, his, his colleague uh, Ramdas has said in his multiple, uh, you know, comments about death and dying, of which he is, I think, the world's expert. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and of course, he says the same thing, sharing death and not being in denial about impermanence and change. I guess I don't want to go on any more about this because it's, it's just obvious, you know, after a while. It's easier said than done, though, because, again, we get back to that balance, Raghu, which is I'm saying all that. But it's interesting that when Alan died the next day, um, I was pretty upset, you know. <laughs> I was kind of, Danny and I were just in his office freaking out. Because we met this man and, and fell in, fallen in love with his ways mm. and his such sweetness. And so, um, you know, I, I, but, I mean, he wasn't my son. He wasn't my daughter. That's infinitely more yeah. well, potent. You know, those things are potent. Yeah. You know. Um, um, here, Dave, just to, yeah. because I think this speaks right exactly uh, to what we're talking about right now. The, just that the, the, this poem of Isha, um, that these people in the East, and particularly in this case in Japan, the, these people, are, as he says, are schooled on these poems. Um, they're schooled in this tradition, in this culture around death, around uh, loss, around impermanence. And he says, it speaks for an old culture's training in saying goodbye to things and putting delight and beauty within a frame. Death undoes us less sometimes than the hope that it will never come. I think that is crucial, crucial information and um, wise. I mean, very uh, uh, the way he put that together, I think, is, is really quite great because uh, we just do not have anything we have fear we put it way out of visibility death uh, and and illness and uh, w you know what a great thought when when you can be comfortable with impermanence 
and putting and you have delight and beauty within a frame so who in the case of somebody leaving or in the case of you yourself becoming quite ill now this is something to say when you're not so mm-hmm. i have to be very careful but that you can uh connect with that who you are that is beautiful and delightful the and who and the life that you not only have had we hope uh everybody it seems to me everybody could connect with some piece of who they are or their lives that has been um fulfilling for them and that's what i think he means by putting it in a frame whether it's yourself or somebody else that is passing or or very ill i mean we we uh, we have another example of that in our in our own uh, community uh, one one very very close uh, person of ours who was with us in india with uh, neem karoli baba and he is apparently um, you know in the last stage of his life uh, with uh, cancer and uh just the other day when a bunch of us were together, uh, you know, Dave, we were at the uh, Bandara in Taos, which is uh, for everybody. Uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba actually left that body 40 years ago. And uh, every year we celebrate at this beautiful Hanuman temple that uh, Ramdas uh, helped create in Taos. Um, and so we were all wanting to, he, uh, he is saying, the one thing that gives him support and joy and delight right now is the connection with all of those people that he's been connected with with you know so many years through maharaji and through india and uh and we all sort of so we all did these little iphone uh, or i did a bunch of iphone interviews with with a lot of uh, of us that were gathered then and and he, that was the uh, the frame for him, the connectivity that we have, which is the glue, which is really that love that Maharaji represents, and that we got from him. You know, it, it's uh, you know, what Krishna says in his concerts uh, at the end: uh, "Love is disease. Love is a disease, and uh, you know we give it to each other." And so this frame, this idea of being comfortable with uh, impermanence and and being able to put a a frame around delight and beauty that is in the the moments that they are, in the moments that they're not. I mean, this this friend of ours has got a lot of suffering, just pain. I mean, you hate that too, you know, when... That that's the probably the toughest thing, right? What does everybody always say? Well, as long as they're not pain, you know, you can deal with it. Uh, so he's dealing with it, and at the same time, he's he's totally he's not a. I mean, he's he's where Ginsburg was uh, at this point. I mean, he's not in in a fair place at all, and he's delighting in this connectivity of his community. So I think that's a an excellent excellent. Uh, teaching for us i mean especially with somebody who's it's the real thing no bullshit he is in pain and he is moving towards uh you know that uh edge of awakening as we we like to call it yeah uh it, it is like many things in life it's it's kind of like i'm saying it's a simultaneous thing where you you are grieving and yet at the same time it's it's Whoop. David's microphone suddenly started acting yeah. strange. Oh, there you are. Sorry about that, but it, it was so loud. He jumped out at it. You no, know. he jumped. I'm sorry for anybody he listening. He just about jumped off this balcony into the Hudson Studiously River. Seriously, don't edit these podcasts, so it's going to stay. So, you know, because we want you to get the real thing. You know, um, I, I, I can't speak for myself in these matters, you know, and um, I just... Sometimes I mean it's sometimes succeed, sometimes fail in being able to understand suffering. Uh, but I can see progress. That's the best I can say. Mm. That you know, looking back on the last half century or something and realizing that 
uh, now I'm much closer to the idea that this is universal, all of this suffering, all of this passing, and that it, it, you know, it's not sort of something in the distant future. I mean, you know, when you're younger, uh, sometimes these things seem rather abstract, actually, because your life seems so far ahead of you. And, and then, in an Einsteinian way, time uh, stops becoming linear at some point and becomes emotional. And that's what it is for me now. Time is emotional. It's not linear. It's, it's a question of what, what are you doing, uh, given the fact that you know that you'll be gone from this incarnation fairly soon. And are you doing anything, anything at all, to either A, help the, your friends, or B, help yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, the suffering, you know, I think it's a truism, but maybe it is true that everybody does suffer because as you defined earlier in this podcast, suffering is not just sort of pain. It's, it's attachment to the ego and to non-impermanence, yeah. to the permanence of the ego and, the, and, and gra- grasping onto that and becoming completely bent out of shape by everything, ultimately, if you can't sort of let go in some way. And um, so that's a good place to start, Dave. I mean, it seems to me, you know, if we're talking about, uh, you know, if we're at the in our 20s, 30s and 40s, even stage um, and and these, you know, suffering happens no more or less. I mean, as far as we are, we have a you just told me about a good friend of ours uh, and it was about, you know, a relationship thing. And he was devastated. Right. And to him, that suffering He's 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 feeling that as as much as uh, somebody who's lost somebody probably. I mean, as far as they're concerned, yes. so that's a good place to start. I think that everything we're saying around, you know, how to get that balance back has to do certainly with self cherishing, with just self referencing. Everything that uh, you know, every thought you have is all about I and what I need, and how I need to receive it back, and it's all based from there. So I think starting there is, is, uh, could be quite beneficial to get you, as you go along in life, to the point where you, um, you can see the benefit of suffering in its transformational way in a real way, though, not in an intellectual way. I mean, it's not always going to be like that because we always have our head way ahead of our hearts. And uh, the more that you can just have this in as, as an experiential process and recognize it as such, then there will be less fear around loss eventually because that obvious. I mean, it happens to anyone at any age. But certainly it happens more as you get older. You lose people, people get sick, you yourself get sick, mm. your capacities go down. So, you know, certainly aging is, you know, uh, is certainly uh, a, 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 a pass for more suffering. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, in this article, he says, he talks about the tear that, that, uh, from the Dalai Lama. And the tear I'd witnessed made me think that you could be strong enough to witness suffering and yet human enough not to pretend to be master of it. Sometimes it's those things we least understand that deserve our deepest trust. Isn't that what love and wonder tell us too? So, folks out there, to me, that is essential, essential way to think about how to have balance and live as a real human being in this life but not not be completely lost in attachment to to yourself by virtue of you know ego yeah. self-centeredness that, that sentence right says that you could be strong enough to witness suffering and yet human enough not to pretend to be master of it i mean that is so brilliant, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's just so incredibly penetrating a thing to yeah. say, because it kind of solves the problem in a way. It says, you know, y- you can you can take it in because it's happening. You can perceive it and process it because it's happening in front of you, with you. But you don't have to pretend that you're totally cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's some spiritual being. Oh well, I yeah. know that suffering brings transformation. You know, the kind of bullshit that we get in, back into. 
that's no different than the bullshit of, of being completely unaware and ignorant of, of who we are. I mean, then we get to be, you know, we're super smart and intellectual and we have a, a real idea of what reality is through these incredible, for instance, Buddhist teachings, which are, uh, you know, the Tibetans have such a grasp on, on what this is really all about and how to deal with it. And once we kind of get that in our brains, we think, oh, we, we got that. This is cool. And we don't really um, open our hearts to the, to the pain. And, and that is certainly endemic to being a human being. This, this is, you know, the reality is loss and impermanence. I mean, and you, you can't skate over that by virtue of having some ideas about arcane, you know, spiritual teachings. I mean, that's just not reality. So that this balance that His Holiness Himself reflected who understands as you said suffering more than he does who understands compassion more than he does you know and it's that balance and it begets that teardrop you know it's a a beautiful statement from as far as i'm concerned the best human being in the world as we know it right now is his holiness yeah and and we want to or yeah congratulate Pico Iyer on writing this article, which is not that incredibly long, and but he just brings into so yeah, much right to the point. Wisdom, you know, so um, a shout out to him. Yeah, and uh, oh else? God, Dave. Well, how long have we been doing this? I don't keep track. This is not a time thing. All of us, we're talking about impermanence, and you're trying to figure out how long we've been talking. <laughs> well, I just, I just wanted to sort of schedule my afternoon. I see. <laughs> I see. You maniac. Jesus. God. Well, no, we, uh, we could talk more about death and impermanence. Um, we can do that. No, that, that's, that's we can okay. Stop talking about it. It's so, you know, it's the core. Yeah, I wonder if we, we've just uh, lost a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of people. <laughs> You're going to sit, sit around or shit around with <laughs> death and dying, and we're trying to be entertained. We thought you had an entertaining podcast, but now this yeah. is horrible <laughs> bullshit. And. Um, I'm, okay, some of this is my fault, folks. Okay, I'll admit it. Pretty much well, all, but, I'd say. You so. know, I, <laughs> thank you. Um, but uh, I've been, because both my parents left uh, earlier this year. Did I tell you about this guy? I was in India, and I was up in that you know high Himalayan forest in, in uh, Jageshwar, and I wanted to find somebody I knew, I thought had a, a, a chai shop in, in the town who I wanted to, he had some stories that I wanted to hear. So I went up to the owner of the hotel that I was staying in, the guest house, and I said, oh, do you know, happen to know this guy? He said, oh, yeah, so-and-so. Yeah, he's off. I said, he's off? Yeah, he's off. He passed away six months ago. Off. Off. He's off. He's off on his next journey. This is, is that, the way these I, people, they translated it. English or, or not? He did? He, he, no, uh, yeah, very, very, very... Uh, not a lot of English, okay? Very right. little English. I mean, so he could... But he's off. He's off. And I thought, what a great uh, yeah, like way it. to... You know, so I'm... Oh, yeah, he's off. So both my parents were off. <laughs> Earlier this year, they went off. And I've been having memorial... You know, so we had a memorial for the family in uh, Montreal, where I'm from. And then we just did one again in uh, Taos at, at, at this event I just told you about. So we did one there. For for all of family that's that's uh, departed, and so uh, all I'm trying to say is maybe I'm I mean I don't think I'm getting uh, morbidly into this. If, you know we have friend we've had a hell of a year, and it certainly has brought up all of this around this kind of suffering and loss, and and so I have been looking out for stuff around this that I thought could help me. And uh, Dave and I talk about this, you know, off the podcast all the time about how to how to deal with this shit and how to get some balance and how not to be completely caught up into fear. I mean, that is more horrible than anything else. And that's what we live with in this culture. And uh, and the antidote is absolutely, um, you know, getting out of, you know, that uh, self-cherishing head and into a heart that can it can hold pain and and not uh, succumb to it and and then eventually yes you can get into a place where there's enough awareness 
that uh, you, you suffering becomes a transformational device. I mean, it is true, and it does happen, and that's all I'm going to say about it, Dave. No. Oh. Okay. You, I mean, he's gone to sleep. I, I mean, no, 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 I'm, I'm awake. I'm, I'm, I'm so taken by what you're you saying. went. But I'm, I'm watching him on Skype. I was not he's leaned back in his chair, and <laughs> I saw a little. His head nod, just, just a little bit. It just a little no, nod. A few seconds. And, no. A few seconds. <laughs> oh, no, God. there's a couple things I want to say. First of all, I okay. love North Carolina, and if oh. I said anything derogatory at the beginning, I take it back. Um, it's just the politics there are really, you know. Yeah, when you terrible. come but here they're, to they're visit, they're terrible everywhere. You know, come on. When you come here to visit, there's going to be a protest group at the airport. <laughs> right. I know it. Right. No, no, but I'm sincere. It's a most beautiful state. Um, I, one of the things that, that struck me about this whole thing was when the Dalai Lama said in Pico Iyer's company, um, you know, when the people were really, really broken, and and wherever with the Fukushima thing affected. Mm-hmm. He said, please help everyone else. Please help everyone else and work hard. That is the best offering you can make to the dead. And that's an extreme case, of course, but he, he said it to ensure in such a way that they're impressed upon. But it does, it is kind of like a formula there that when you're full of fear, the people I know who are least full of fear, on the whole, are people who serve people, mm. seriously serve people. And they can be, uh, like, a, in the most obvious way, a waiter that uh, served myself and Sandra at um, an incredible uh, restaurant in New York last week, who was to, we both were just amazed by his incredible service, if you know what I mean. Mm, mm. He was just incredibly good at what he did and quite graceful and gracious. From that to people who are at this moment, you know, in various parts of the world, helping people who are in great, great suffering and are doing it not out of some kind of mission or but just because they have to and there are so many of those people and i found in my experience quite a bit that those people who are spending much of their time thinking about others and having to pragmatically think about them, everything from medical stuff to all kinds of other stuff mm. that they have a certain kind of smile on their face a lot of the time and it's not a it's not a um it's not a bullshit it's a certain kind of resting in the fact that they've escaped much of their of their me movie right of their i me mine and have moved to a place where they can genuinely help other people and when people say that those it gives them more satisfaction than anything it, it's a, again it's a cliche but it's clearly true because i've experienced it so many times and so when the dalai lama asked them to help others that had survived the tsunami um we can take from that a, a, on any level the idea that um, as soon as you get out, you can climb out of that me movie for a while, um, whatever way you can, uh, the fear diminishes. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We're at the end of this now, Dave. Oh, we are? I'm yeah. uh, Well, I mean, you know, we can only, they can only take so much of our ponderous comments. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, but we do our best to to really get as real as we can about our own dilemmas here. So we hope you appreciate mindrollingpodcast.com. Please do come to the site. Uh, you know, we, we love your support. We love your comments. We love your mail. So keep that up. And, uh, yeah, take a look what Dave's putting up there in some of these blogs. Maybe I'll do one one day, Dave. Yeah, I just, I, can... up, I just put up, Raghu, something that people would like. It's called Ramana Maharshi's Song of the Papadam. Wow, and it's a it's a song he wrote about making papadams, and and it is just an Indian. Uh, it's an Indian cracker kind of papadam. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and it's it's it, he wrote it with such style. And the, really? I looked, I looked at three different translations, and found I thought the best one, which was on the Ramana Maharshi, a collected Ramana Maharshi. Oh, great. Site. So, but if you if you if you're not if you hear this and it's not on there, just go to the archives and look at the. Um, yeah, everything is saved. Everything is archived. So, you know, you can always thumb through them and uh, and get with something you, you, you might enjoy. So uh, share with us. We love sharing with you. Mindrollingpodcast.com. David, thanks. This is a good one. Yeah, thank you very much. See you later. Bye.